Um, boundaries. Anybody know anybody that has like no boundaries? Like n- not very good at, at respecting boundaries. I love to um, say that these people drive me nuts, but I spend every single day of my life with one. Um, he's looking at me in the mirror every morning. Um, I mean, and he was Chris and I have boundary issues. Um, <laughs> one of the toughest parts of kind of having ADD is the lack of boundaries, like the lack of recognizing boundaries. And uh, honestly, the uh, this is the one place where I always wonder if the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, really applies. I always wonder if that applies to people with ADD, because I'm like, I have no trouble if people uh, ignore my boundaries, so why should I not ignore other people's boundaries? It gets tricky, um, because things that don't bug me weirdly seem to bug other people. And so I have to kind of relearn how that works. And uh, and uh, to really get into that, we have to go back 31 years, um, which we've been doing a lot in this series. And I have to tell these two stories backwards from the way they happened, um, because uh, uh, if I don't, you'll you'll uh, you won't fully understand. Um, you'll feel too sorry for my wife, and I don't want you to do that. Um, so, <laughs> because I want you to know she had plenty of warning. But Esther and I got married um, in August on the hottest day of the year, and the reception was at a friend's house, in a really nice house. And so we gathered, we danced, we cut the cake, we did all the things. Um, and when we left, um, I guess the party continued for a while, uh, and, and other people cleaned everything up. And I have to be 100% honest, I didn't even think about, till I wrote this message, how that happened. Like, who cleaned up, or, or like how things got cleaned up. It never crossed my mind once that, that somebody else had to come in and clean up for us. So that's kind of cool. Um, but I have no idea who did that, or, or, uh, or how the wedding or the reception got put back together. I'm sure, like, the little elves came in and did it. But... Uh, but we left early and, and we slept for the first time in the apartment that we had been getting ready for, for uh, a couple weeks, um, but it never stayed in before. And, and we had no routines built yet. We didn't know how anything worked. This is our first, you know, um, night and day as a married couple ever. And uh, the future is a blank slate. And I'm not much of a kind of a routine. I didn't, I'm not much of a routine person anyway, but I have no idea what like waking up and doing the morning is going to be like. I don't, we don't know any of these things yet. And so, uh, so we kind of wake up, pass a couple morning pleasantries. Esther goes into the bathroom while I go and answer a knock at the door. And, uh, and the knock turns out to be Esther's dad who has brought over all of our wedding gifts from the night before, which I guess gives a clue as to who helped clean up, but, um, but, uh, so he comes in, we kind of try really hard not to look each other in the eye, um, and, uh, my brand new father-in-law, you know, now that I'm married and it's too late, um, tries to give me this, like, warning that my brand new wife is really stubborn, stubborn and has a strong will, um, didn't tell me that before, like, this is like, we're married now, it's like too late, like, now that she's yours, um, and, and uh, I could tell that he was, he was probably telling me really important stuff, but he had also just dropped like 50 presents in my living room. And I have ADD, so I'm like, could you leave? I want to open presents. Um, and uh, so I make some like really lame promise that I was going to take care of his little girl. And, and, and I said goodbye to him, ran back into the apartment and, and uh, looked at all these presents. It was like Christmas in August. It was like the weirdest. And... Uh, and I'm now married, so I have to think about more than just myself. And so I um, knocked on the bathroom door, and she said, what? Which is ex- still exactly how she answers the bathroom door when you knock on it today. At this point, it was because I hadn't corrupted her enough to, like, use the word poop yet. And so she's, she didn't want to, I was like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm going to the bathroom, you know. And uh, 
And so I did what every newly man who's been married for a little over 12 hours would do. I picked the bathroom lock. I took about six of our gifts in there. And I sat down in front of her and it's like, what do you want to open first? And, and, uh, and, and it turns out she would rather poop alone. Um, how was I supposed to know that? Like I, uh, so, so, <laughs> so honestly, she's shy enough that it's years before I find out that bothered her, like that, that, that it bugged her, like before she finally got enough nerve to go, could I please poop alone? Like, so, <laughs> but before you feel bad for her, okay? <laughs> Too late. Before, before you feel sorry for her and feel like I duped her, um, I have to tell the other story, uh, because on, our, on the night of our first date, so, you know, months before the night of our first date, um, I show up to her house early. Maybe the only time in my life I've ever been early. And uh, and and she's still um, getting ready. She came home from work. She went to the bathroom, got ready. Um, somebody said hello to me. And, uh, and, and so I run up to the bathroom and walk in. And she's putting on her makeup. And so I just kind of stood behind her and told her about my day and, and watched her put on her face and, and, <laughs> and do the thing. Uh, and... Um, and now the door of the bathroom wasn't locked. It wasn't like I picked it to get in. It was open. But yeah, I just kind of stood behind her and watched her put on makeup and asked her some questions about it. Like, do you do this all the time? Like, that's a lot of stuff. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and again, years, years before I find out that bothered her. Like, how was I supposed to know you don't do that? Um, so yeah, um, she knew what she was getting into. That's what I'm trying to say. She knew exactly what she was getting into. When she married me, I have boundary issues. The the makeup thing should have been an indicator um, that that was going to be me, but but she knew what she was getting herself into. And believe it or not, that does have something to do with what we're talking about this morning. Um, this is Palm Sunday, and uh, kind of the official start to Holy Week. Um, Jesus had traveled from Galilee in the north, where he lived and did most of his ministry, um, to Jerusalem in the south uh, for the Passover festival. Um, he was staying with some friends in a nearby town uh, of Bethany. Uh, and on Sunday, which is the Jewish start to the week, um, Saturday is their, their, their seventh day, so Sunday's the first day of the week. So uh, on Sunday, um, he rode into Jerusalem um, for the beginning of the, of the festival. And this is the day that, that the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, would typically enter the city. Um, only when, when Pilate entered, he rode on a, a, a tall horse or a chariot um, surrounded by soldiers and bodyguards and a general display of pomp and power. And the people would gather um, to see royalty uh, go by. There's a couple um, historians that have wrote about this moment and they write about how big and glorious this entrance always was. Um, and so Jesus, on the same day, enters the city on a really young donkey. Um, quite a different picture. Uh, and he's surrounded by a relatively small but really loyal group of followers who despite the surprise and derision of the crowds around them, worship Jesus basically into the back door of the city. And so it, it uh, not only fulfills a lot of prophetic scripture this moment, but it also creates this beautiful juxtaposition um, between... Uh, the kind of power we tend to flock to um, and the, the kind of real power that comes from humility, um, that Jesus kind of humbly enters the city as a display of what real power looks like. Uh, but with this ride into the city, Jesus sets off a, a chain of events that will end with him on the cross um, and then ultimately changing everything 
uh, on Easter morning. And generally we read the, the, the actual triumphal entry uh, passage on Palm Sunday with the palm branches and the hosannas and, 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 and Jesus riding in. But this morning, um, as a conclusion to our series where we've been talking about the classic covenants of the Bible, um, we're going to jump into the middle of the week um, where Jesus really more than anything else unpacks uh, the message that Esther brought us last week, the message of the prophets. Um, and Jesus starts to kind of unlock that a little bit. And, and the whole, uh, this whole section of our, of our Old Testament, this prophetic section, um, is the second piece of the Bible that was kind of added to the canon. And it was only added because things had gone terribly wrong. And nobody fully understood what had happened. Um, the, the other covenants had basically fallen apart. Um, that, and, and the ones that we've studied in the city, God had told Adam that, that the head of the serpent would be crushed, uh, but the serpent's still alive and well and wreaking havoc. God had told Abraham that, that he, God, would give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants. But now uh, Abraham's remaining family is no longer in the land. They've been taken into captivity. They're in another country, basically slaves again. God had promised Moses that people would be a special treasure, an example people out of all the nations of the world. And now they're basically a laughing stock in the land that, that held them captive. Um, and, and God had promised David that, that he would always have an heir sit on the throne of Israel. And now there's not only no heir, but there's no throne. And everything had fallen completely apart. And as these Jews in captivity dug through the stories and the songs and the poems and the dire warnings of this group of writers that had mostly been outcast and mostly been reviled simply because their message was painful, um, only, only now, as these Jews dig through these messages, they find not only this biblical mirror that was glaring all of their failures back at them, um, but they also found hope that God was not done, that He had, uh, that He had more to give them, and that that these promises that He had made were not finished. Um, and so, the very prophets who predicted that the people of Israel would wind up exactly where they're wound up also prophesied hope that God had more for them, that God would fulfill His covenants after all. And as Esther laid out last week, all of that was available if they would just turn, if they would repent, if they would seek after God and, and welcome Him back um, with, with holiness into their story. Uh, and it's impossible to understand how much that hope message, that message from the prophets, uh, became the very lifeblood of the Jewish people. Um, because buried in all of those prophetic writings about the things that the Jews had done wrong and the things that was going to happen to them and then what he was going to do to the nations that, that, that treated them poorly and, and, you know, once he was done punishing Israel, he was going to turn and punish the nations that he used to punish Israel. There's a big message of that in the prophets. And hidden inside all of that, um, was, was this message that God had not forgotten his promises, that God still remembered the covenants. Um, so in all of that stuff, the difficult to hear stuff, the hopeful stuff, in all that stuff is hidden this weird little passage that we're going to talk about today. And it almost goes unremarked after it's given. Um, but it's now 2,600 years later, maybe one of the most familiar passages of Scripture. Um, and it stayed hidden until Jesus shows up and, and unpacks it. Uh, and and, and, and uh, in his time, it was not a popular scripture. It was not a big thing. But we're going to unpack it. It's in Jeremiah 31. And it reads like this. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors 
when I took them uh, by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant, and I will make it with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbor, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Now, um, one of the things that, that we've been stressing over and over again in this series is how formative these covenants had been uh, in the lives of the Jewish people. And by formative, I don't just mean like theologically formative, like the kind of things you talk about in Bible studies um, and small groups or Sunday school, but like formative, like identity formative, like the American dream or like, you know, manifest destiny, those things that kind of shape the way an entire group of people see themselves and, and view and understand their story and their narrative. Um, these are kind of narratival themes that shape whole people, people groups. Um, that's what the covenants were to them. It wasn't something they necessarily sat down and, you know, and, and, and studied, you know, in like a Bible study. This was like who we are. It's really hard to, um, to understand, um, how big of an impact they had on it. But, but everything the Jewish people looked forward to, everything they believed about who they were, um, as a people was all wrapped up in the fact that they were the children of Abraham, the people that God promised through Moses, um, to, to, to be special, the subjects of this kingdom of David. These things shaped who they were as people. Uh, these promises were were just a part of everything they did. Their daily lives were wrapped up in, in in who they were because of what was said about them. And because of this, no one really liked this morning's message. Nobody liked this passage from Jeremiah. Um, the, when everything you are and everything you hope for is wrapped up in something that was said a long time ago, you 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 really want those to come to pass. Um, every word of them you want to come to pass. Uh, and, and when uh, that is, isn't the case, and, and you hear statements like this, I'm going to, one day I'm going to make a new covenant. When you hear, you know, somebody come along and say, I'm going to make, like, uh, when you read that, you think new covenant, like, we don't want a new covenant. We want God to fulfill the old covenant. Like, we want, we want the old ones to come to pass. Like, we want, we, uh, God promised our land, um, through Abraham and that an heir of David would sit on the throne. That's what we want. We want this old covenant to happen. Like we're, we're still hanging on to those. He said he would come and heal our land. And, and so we'll just stick with the old covenants. Thank you very much. Like it's hard to, to grasp how, how, um, how much they still put faith in those old covenants. Um, one of the problems with the, the way the first century Jews, the Jews who kind of lived in Jesus' time, um, one of the problems with the way they read the prophets is that they read um, the writings of this group of people who warned Israel what was coming, um, that kind of this coming doom, that they were going to be taken into Assyrian captivity and Babylonian captivity and, and your nation is going to fall apart. Um, one of the problems with the way they read that was that they, they totally accepted that their ancestors had failed. They totally accepted that. They also believed that they turned back to God and that's why God brought them back to their land. And so uh, one, of the, one of the things that I really appreciate that Esther brought out um, last week was how the Jews came out of captivity and really nothing had changed. Like, like, but they didn't see it that way. Like, they saw it like 
all the punishments have already happened, so there's nothing left to happen other than the good stuff. Like, we've, we've, we've been through our punishment, we went into captivity, we came out, and now it's just waiting for God um, to bless them. Uh, uh, and because they no longer focused on the prophets as, as warnings, now they're just focusing on the hopeful part of the prophets. Um, the old covenants look great. Like the old covenants look like fulfilling those old covenants. Now that we've already been through all the punishments that come with the old covenant, now we just want God to fulfill the good parts. Um, they accepted their ancestors had gone wrong, um, and uh, and that they had been, now been punished for it, and 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 they're still waiting on David. They still know David's heir is to come, but that's really just to bring in the full time of blessing. The idea of anything bad happening because of what the prophet said, or seeing those as a warning, still didn't really exist. Um, they they saw themselves as as fulfilling the Mosaic covenant now, like we we. We've, we've had our punishment, and now God, because we now serve God wholeheartedly, um, He's gonna bless us. Um, and we don't have time to put it all together, but this is why when the rich young ruler we talk about quite a bit came to Jesus and was like, hey, how do I, how do, how do I be righteous? And Jesus said, well, you obey the commandments. He goes, I have all my life, ever since I was a kid. Like, like this kid, this guy generally believes he's never broken the commandments. And like, and most of the Jews believe that. Like, they believed, you know, that they had not broken any of the commandments. And so, um, so they're living fully expecting all the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant um, because they no longer sin. Like they, and they still kind of believe that. If you talk to Jews today and you ask because they don't have sacrifices, you're like, well, with no sacrifices, how do you atone for your sin? They're like, we don't sin. Like, you just don't sin. That's what you do. Like, you quit sinning. And, and, and they believe that and, they, and that's how they, they live. Well, the Jews literally believe that they no longer sin. And this is why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, kept going, you've heard it said, you know, what I say is if you even think wrong, you're, you're like, he was putting the bar back up where it goes. Like they had lowered it to this thing they could actually do. And so in the whole Sermon on the Mount, he's going, you've heard it said, don't murder. I'm saying if you get angry for no reason, you've already sinned. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm saying if you've lust, you already sinned. Like he's, he's lifting the bar back up. Like you guys lowered this thing down to something you think you can do. I'm telling you, no, you cannot do this. Like he, he had to put the bar back where it was. Um, so, uh, but the point is, no one really talked much about this idea of a new covenant because there was no reason to. They loved the old covenant. They, were, they no longer sinned, which means they should have gotten all the blessings that come with the big if in, in the Mosaic covenant. If you obey me, you'll get all these blessings. And now they have reason to expect in their minds all these blessings. They don't need anything new. They don't need a new covenant. The old one is just fine. Until Jesus comes along. And the final week of his life during what we now celebrate as Holy Week um, sat down with his disciples and kind of dusted off this old prophecy. And there's no other mention of a new covenant in the Old Testament. And really, in Jewish commentary of that day, they didn't talk about it much at all. Nobody really, nobody really liked it, wanted it. Um, and, and Jesus comes and, and kind of pulls this obscure prophecy out of the Old Testament and makes it one of the most familiar passages in history now. Um, and, and it reads like this. After the supper, Jesus took another cup of wine and said, this is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. It's truly amazing um, how many things are, are kind of happening in this one little passage here and how masterfully Jesus weaves them all into this moment for his followers. But um, 
This cup that he uses is the third cup that it says after the meal he takes the cup. That's a very specific cup in the Jewish Seder meal. It's the third toast um, of, a, of a Seder meal. And for time out of mind, it had been called the cup of salvation. And they would hold it up and they would make this toast. Blessed be the God, maker of heaven and earth, who is our salvation. They would, that's the toast they would give with this cup that was drank after the meal. And so that's the cup Jesus picks up. And he's like, this is the cup. So he uses this symbol that they already knew really well, this cup of salvation. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. He chooses one that everybody would already know um, and, and, and says, this is, the sal- like, this is salvation. The cup of salvation is what's on the table. Um, no pun intended. Um, then Jesus brings up this idea of a new covenant. And, and again, not a common phrase in his day. There's simply no way he's not intentionally pointing back to Jeremiah 31. Um, he says, this is about that. Like, what we're doing here is about that. This is a new covenant. If you want to understand this, you have to go back and study that. Um, and finally, um, he attaches this cup of wine to his blood. Um, and, and this had to be really weird for the disciples, because there's no way they were expecting... His real blood. So this had to be just an out of nowhere. But it had to be really cool to go back and unpack it later after Easter happens and they understand the whole thing. But at this moment, there's, there's no reason to understand it except um, uh, in, in the, the reference to the covenant that he brings up here. Because um, this element, this blood element of the new covenant um, is so important. Um, uh, in Jeremiah, if you remember, God says... Um, through the mouth of this prophet, that he's going to do a new covenant in place of the old covenant. And so he's like, I, this is not like the one I made with them in Sinai. This is a new covenant. And, uh, and this uh, is truly new because and what's weird about this moment is the Abrahamic covenant did not undo the, the Adamic covenant. And the, and the Mosaic covenant didn't undo the Abrahamic covenant. And the Davidic covenant didn't undo... Uh, the Mosaic Covenant, like the covenant is just built on each other. And so for Jesus to come in, and really this is what made Jeremiah's prophecy so weird, is for him to come in and say, this is going to replace this. We're, like this is going to undo this. This is going to change this. That had never happened before. Every covenant just added on to the previous ones. But Jeremiah says, I'm going to make a new covenant, and it's not going to be like that one covenant. It's going to be different. We're going to do this different this time. Um, so when, when, when Jeremiah gives a prophecy of a new covenant, when Jesus kind of dusts it off and says this is about that, um, God calls, uh, calls out one of the covenants in specifically and says this is not like that. This is different. Um, this is a different kind of covenant. It says, in, uh, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Judah and Israel. This covenant will not be like the one. I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand out of Egypt. So he's naming a covenant. The one that was made when I took them by the hand out of Egypt. The Mosaic Covenant. Um, and so we know exactly what this covenant is not. It is not like the Mosaic Covenant. Um, it's not like that. Um, it doesn't replace the Edemic Covenant. It doesn't change the Abrahamic Covenant or the Davidic Covenant. This covenant is very targeted. Um, it's, it's aimed at one particular thing. But um, as, as it is meant to replace a particular covenant... Um, it bears some incredible similarities to that covenant. And, uh, and it follows some very similar forms. It says, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Um, that's the, the new covenant Jeremiah is talking about. Now let's look at the covenant that it's supposed to replace. 
It says this, exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived at the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to, to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp at the base of Sinai. And Moses climbed the mountain and appeared before God. And God called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. And so you see the similarities there. God tells Jeremiah, I'm going to put my instructions on their heart. I'm going to write them. And he told Moses, go and give these instructions to the people. Very similar. And yet very different. There's some major differences here. He says, I will put my instructions deep in their heart, God says. And that replaces... You know, giving to Moses, give these instructions to the people of Israel. It's a major change. God chooses with this new covenant that he's going to be the mediator of this covenant. Moses will no longer stand between God and his people. And it continues in this vein. It says, I will be their God. They will be my people. That, that's Jeremiah. And that replaces him saying, I will be, they will be, you will be my own special treasure. You'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what he told Israel in the first place. So very, very similar. But the piece that Jeremiah leaves out, but that Jesus kind of catches and, and clearly makes the connection at dinner with his disciples is huge. It says, Then Moses carefully wrote down all the Lord's instructions. Early the next morning, Moses got up, built an altar at the foot of the mountain. Uh, but he set up twelve pillars, one for each of the tribes of Israel. Uh, then he sent some of the young Israelite men um, to present burnt offerings, and sacrifice of bulls, and peace offerings uh, to the Lord. And Moses drained half the blood from these animals into basins. The other half he splattered against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. So he's written it down. He reads it to the people. And again, they all respond, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood from the basins and splattered it all over the people, declaring, look, this blood confirms the covenant that the Lord is making with you in giving these instructions. So Moses makes this kind of verbal contract uh, between God and his people. And just like if you buy real estate and you've kind of haggled your price, or maybe you don't haggle, but you agree on a price, um, and you and both sides are now happy, uh, there's still something to do. Like you still don't have a contract until you sign it. Like you have to actually sign it. Like you can you can totally do all the dickering and talking, and and that means nothing until you've signed the contract. Similar, God, you know, Abraham Moses goes to God, and God says, "Here's my covenant," and he takes it to the people. They say, "We'll do everything," but it's not done until they seal it, and they seal it with this with blood. In that culture, you sprinkle blood um, to basically sign the contract. It's like a blood oath. You're now you're now in. So that's what Moses does here. He writes down the terms, takes it to the people, and then, and then they, they basically sign it in blood. He splatters blood. And 1,500 years later, Jesus is, is instituting this new contract. And, and the, the terms are so similar and yet so different. And, and he's clearly referring back to this moment um, with this new contract when he, when he says, and this covenant is made in my blood. This isn't the blood of bulls and sacrifices, you know, it, but it's still, it's still sealed in, in blood. Blood will be shed, blood will be sprinkled, um, and in fact, whenever you drink this cup, um, you'll, it'll be a reminder of that moment. It'll be a reminder of this new covenant. Um, and now, just so we kind of get the magnitude of this moment, let, let's recap. Right here in the middle of the very first Holy Week, Jesus gathers his disciples. He draws their attention to this passage in Jeremiah. Um, and speaks of this kind of major change in the way God does business with His people. Um, he packs this moment with some really deep and emotional symbols, um, this third glass of wine that, that they were so familiar with. Um, and the whole thing is designed to prepare His followers for just how dramatically everything's about to change. You know, their whole life was wrapped up in this Mosaic Covenant, and He's saying we're, we're redoing that. 
Um, but this begs the question, what really changes? What is so different about this new covenant? What's different about the way these work? I mean, you know, murder was wrong in the, in the Mosaic covenant. Did that change? Stealing was wrong. Cheating in the marketplace was wrong, according to the old covenant. Oppressing the poor was wrong. It was wrong to worship idols or, or give your loyalty to other gods. That's pretty much still a rule. If we're honest, most of what, what we really don't, um, the way, most of the way we live isn't really that much different than the way they lived under the Mosaic Covenant. Even the first century Jews that lived in Jesus' time. Our music, you know, references Jesus and doesn't use as many minor keys as theirs. Otherwise, we still sing to God. But honestly, you know, they strove to live lives of holiness and so do we. They followed biblical rules and so do we. And the definitions of, of what that means to live godly comes from pretty much the same place. We quote pretty much the same scriptures. In fact, if, if, if we were really capable of self-reflection and honesty, most of the places where Jesus got yelled at by the religious leaders, except for maybe healing on the Sabbath, I think we would be okay with that. But most of the other times they get upset with him, we probably would have too. When was the last time you had lunch with a prostitute? I think if I was having lunch with a prostitute, you guys would probably be upset about that. You might say, hey, dude. I I have to assume my my wife would be. She's like, strippers are okay, not prostitutes. Most of us wouldn't be comfortable with that. Neither Neither were the Jewish leaders. They were like, dude, who is this guy? And I'm not saying, you know, that I should be hanging out with prostitutes by any means. I'm, I'm just saying, you know, we don't, we don't live that much different than, than the way the people who had a problem with Jesus lived. We, we have biblically defined do's and don'ts, and we kind of rely on them to, to guide us into what it means to live a godly life. And so did they. So what's really different between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Why did Jeremiah prophesy this new deal... And more importantly, why did Jesus not only announce it, but, but die to seal it with His blood? And I think this is where the whole thing gets kind of cool and where we sometimes miss the point. See, we have this tendency to focus on morality. We, we've, we've grown so focused on kind of the philosophical debates about what is right and what is wrong that we're capable of misunderstanding the meaning of holiness. I think a great deal of confusion and maybe even kind of vague frustration comes from this, from this misunderstanding, especially when we read the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is full of commands that we don't really understand. Most of us have dismissed the majority of those, but even when we do, we don't really know why we do. Like, we, we can't for the life of us figure out why we shouldn't wear clothes made from two different fabrics. They're just more comfortable. <laughs> Like, why would that be, why would that have anything to do with it? Even though the Jews weren't allowed to, we dismiss that because it doesn't really make sense to us. And yet we still want to believe murder's wrong. Right? And it kind of makes us nervous because we can't really explain why we've ditched the one, but we really can't ditch the other. Everybody getting uncomfortable yet? And this is where things can get messy, especially, um, man, I guess I really made some people angry. Sorry. <laughs> yep, you made them too mad. We're out. 
And this is where things get messy, especially when we sum up the Old Testament Mosaic Law as a definition of morality. What is right and what is wrong? But the Old Testament has this word that it uses that we don't always know what to do with. Tumah. Tumah. This is, this is the Hebrew word that is translated in English to unclean. Tumah. And a great deal of the Mosaic Covenant is, is concerned with Tumah. And if you want to spend years reading the Talmud, there's some, there's some great, you can eavesdrop on some great debates, countless debates on, on the idea of Tumah. They have, the, they have two different things, what makes the body Tumah and what makes the soul Tumah. What, what makes your body unclean and what makes your soul unclean. And they divide a lot of the things up that way. We don't have time to get into any of that this morning. But, but the thing that's important is some of the Mosaic Law is about morality, for sure. But a great deal of it is outlining what it means to be Tumah. Ritually clean and ritually unclean. And what can cause you to be ritually unclean. And we really don't know what to do with this because some of the stuff that, that causes uncleanliness doesn't make sense to us. And, and, if, and if, it, if it, like what's the difference between unclean and immoral? And then it's really important that we make sense of this. For instance, some of the things that make you unclean, ritually unclean, are touching a dead animal, including a dead animal that you just killed to eat. And remember, they don't have grocery stores. It doesn't come prepackaged. If you kill it, you're now unclean. But you have to kill it to eat. Sex between a husband and wife makes you unclean. A woman having her monthly cycle makes her unclean. A woman having a baby makes her unclean. Anyone who touches a dead body, including checking for a pulse, makes them unclean. The entire mortuary staff is unclean. The priest that confirms death is unclean. A pot touched by anything unclean, if it's metal, now has to be cleaned, and the act of cleaning it makes you unclean. A priest whose job it is to collect all the ashes from the red heifer is unclean. And get this, you have to have the ashes of the red heifer to create the thing that cleanses you before the, before the, the Day of Atonement, before Passover. And so he has to do this act for anybody else to be clean, but he's unclean now. And, it, and it's commanded that he do this job. So when you mix up unclean and immoral... You're left wondering, what on earth did these people do that's so wrong? I mean, we promise teenagers all the time that when they get married, they'll be able to have sex and it'll be clean and it's holy and God blesses it. Then you read in the scripture, it's like a husband and wife who has sex are unclean. And this is where the heart of God starts to get revealed a little bit. Because see, we have this impression um, that the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant is to create morally pure people. Right? Righteous people. And, and yes, that's part of it. And if you live according to the Mosaic Law, you will be righteous. Yes. But there, that's not the only thing at stake here. God wanted um, uh, what was kind of in his heart with that, was that he might live amongst his people. It wasn't just that this is what I want you to do. These are the do's and don'ts. It's I want to be among you. And to be among you, we have to do things a certain way. In the tabernacle and later the temple, he was creating a space where he could be, his presence could be with his people. It was never a sin to be unclean. It's not a sin at all to be unclean. You're expected to be unclean. 
I mean, God commanded his husband and wife, be fruitful and multiply. And when you do, you'll be unclean. <laughs> like, how do you obey God? You know, it was never a sin. A, a woman has no control over her cycle. It was never a sin to, to be unclean. Uncleanliness was expected. Un, being unclean is, was never a sin. There's no way... There, and, and most of the cleansing rituals are pretty simple. Just so you know, uh, when a husband and wife enjoy the marital bed, they just have to bathe afterwards. Then they're clean again. And I think you had to wait till evening. But like, it's not like, it's not like a big, like you're unclean forever. Um, but what was a sin wasn't being unclean. It's marching into the presence of God unclean. That's when it was a sin. It was never a sin to, to, to do these things that made you unclean. You just, you just couldn't go into the presence of God that way. You can wear two fabrics if you want. You just don't do that into the presence of God. It's, it's this weird symbol that God wanted of, of oneness and unity. You know, and so, and so he, he created these symbols that were part of worshiping him. What, what was sin was to take the common, the everyday things, sex, killing your food, normal hygiene stuff, you know, gathering supplies for, for worship, you know, to mix the common with the holy. That was what was a sin. And so, and so there was nothing wrong with all these activities. God just wanted his presence to be different. He wanted his presence to be special. You don't, you don't come in, you know, in, in the way I grew up, you don't walk into church chewing gum or wearing a hat. Like, God's presence is different. You do it different. And he wanted his presence to stand out. God's presence was special. In other words, God had boundaries. He locked the bathroom door. Um, yeah. And, God, and he wanted his people to respect those boundaries. And I think this really, really uh, defines the question that we're wrestling with this morning, which is what's so different about the New Covenant and the Old Covenant? Because the writer of the book of Hebrews wrestles with that exact same thing. And he kind of unpacks this. There's like three verses that are just about, three chapters, I mean, that are just about unpacking this idea. It reads like this. But when God found fault with the people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make an, oh, make a new covenant. Oh, this is the Hebrew writer quoting Jeremiah. Sorry. So he's literally doing what we're doing this morning. He's just kind of doing the exact same study we're doing. So this is the writer of Hebrews quoting Jeremiah. But when, but when God found fault with the people, he said this. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And in Hebrews chapter 8, he, he goes to quote the entire passage we read from, from Jeremiah. And then he adds this. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Again, what does it mean for a covenant to disappear? Is thou shalt not murder still valid? Well, the writer of the Hebrews starts to unpack that, that very thought in the, in the next uh, verse. And we get a glimpse into what's happening here. It says, the first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. These are those unclean rules. There was ways you had to pursue, like, per, like approach God. There was ways you had to do it. The author goes on to talk about the structure of the tabernacle, um, which we're actually going to unpack uh, in two weeks um, as we start Romans. So if you want to know what the tabernacle and Romans have to do with each other, come back. Um, <laughs> uh, 
But he goes to unpack this tabernacle and, and, and how it was almost designed to limit access to God. It's got different chambers and you only go, and really the, only the priest went into the inner chamber and even then he only went once a week. And when you get into the Talmud, the things they did, they would stay awake two nights um, in advance. So they haven't slept for two nights and those days once they go into the Holy of Holies once a year because they were afraid they might sin in their dreams. Like going into God's presence was that serious. You know, we've all heard the things where they put bells around them so you could hear them tinkling in there. If ever there was a thump and the tinkling stopped, you, they had a rope around their waist because you pulled them out. Because nobody was going to go in there, like, because you didn't go through the three days of purification before you went into the presence of God. And it was a spooky thing. It was like a scary thing. They used to draw lots to figure out which priest went in every year. And that had to be a terrifying moment. Like, oh man, I'm the one. Like, I hope I'm okay. Um, so it was a spooky thing. And so the, the writer of the Hebrews kind of unpacks that a little bit and how, how this tabernacle, this place where God's presence could be amongst His people, was almost designed to limit access. They only went once a year. And, and it, so this picture painted is almost one of separation. Like careful separation. And remember, the author here is speaking about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And he transitions to the new like this. And so Christ has now come, become the high priest over all the good things that have come. And he has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which is not made by human hands and is not part of the created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the holy place, the most holy place, once and for all, and secured our redemption Forever, And the writer of Hebrews continues to kind of unpack the difference between the two covenants. It's kind of wordy, so I didn't want to read it all. But he says, under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies for ceremonial impurity. That's that unclean thing. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. Remember, that, that tabernacle is designed to create separation. So the problem with, with only thinking in terms of morality is that the work of Jesus um, did uh, is in that place really only about salvation. It's really only about heaven. It's really only about your, your, your entrance, uh, your escape from hell, really. Getting to heaven after we die. And that's part of it. And it's a beautiful part. But we have to remember a couple things. First, the old, the old covenant never mentions heaven. God never offers it or stresses its importance. In fact, I think heaven, even by New Testament definitions, is more of a side effect. I don't think it's the goal. I think it's a byproduct of what God is offering. In the Mosaic Covenant and, and what Christ purchased by His blood in the New Covenant, um, it, it, it's not buying heaven. It, it's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a side effect of it. And we miss this when, when we... When we Turn it into kind of life into salvation into a long waiting game. Like really, this is, doesn't mean anything. It's just about heaven and 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 you know, or or even worse, like this is a proving ground, you know, or you don't get into heaven kind of thing. I don't think that's what God had in mind with Moses or Jesus. And so, for the rest of chapter nine and chapter ten of Hebrews, the writer uh, continues to unpack the differences between these two covenants. Um, and, and to come to this beautiful conclusion um, in chapter 10, verse 19, it says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, so this is his 
How do we respond to this? Like this is his his conclusion. So what does all this mean? He spent three chapters unpacking the difference between these two covenants. He's like, what does this all mean? What do we do with this? How does this affect us? How do we respond to this? He says we can go boldly into heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have this great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting Him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed to make us, or washed with pure water. Let us hold tight without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep His promises. I'm going to read that again in a second, but before I do, let's look back. God creates humanity, places them in a garden where He can walk with them in the cool of the evening. God's presence and humanity's presence both in the same place in close, intimate fellowship. That Eden was broken and separation between God and and people happened. So God grabs a man. He says, I'm going to use your family to fix things. I'm going to use your family to change things. And later with that family, he calls Moses to, to create this system whereby God can, can, can be with His people on earth and live in fellowship with His people on earth in the same space through the tabernacle and, and then later through the temple. This, this weird space where God's presence and, and people's presence can intermingle again. And that doesn't work. The people don't keep their end. So God sends His Son the fulfillment of the promise to to Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. And and Jesus sits down with His followers and says, I'm about to do a new thing. Only it's not completely new because Jeremiah was talking about it 600 years earlier. But I'm about to inaugurate a, a new thing that will reveal my Father's heart. The same heart that wanted to live with His people in the garden, the same heart that wanted to live with His people in the tabernacle and in the temple that same heart that wants to live with his people in Wellsville, Kansas. And that's the whole point. The reason for the whole thing. And, and, it's, and it's so big that heaven is really just the side effect. The meaning of the whole thing is God wants to be with his people. And yet heaven becomes a space where that can happen. But the heart of God has always been to live with his people. Right, the Hebrews said we can go boldly into heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have this great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right in to the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood and make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tight without wavering to the the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep His promises. This is not heaven, though heaven is no doubt a part of it. This is nothing less than the heart of God that has been revealed from the beginning of human time. God dwelling amongst His people. And He had to make a way because His holiness and our uncleanness couldn't mix. So we had to be made clean. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. 
Our bodies have been washed with pure water. Jesus enters the human story as the fulfillment of so much Scripture to finish the work that He had been doing all along. The writer of the Hebrews says God can be trusted to keep His promises. And that's exactly what God did with His final breath as His blood is literally sprinkling the ground, sealing this covenant that He introduced at dinner. Jesus screams, it is finished. The deal is signed. Our salvation is purchased. Prophesied by Jeremiah. I will forgive their wickedness and I'll never again remember their sins. Our our salvation was paid for. So how do we respond to this? This idea of a new covenant um, caught almost all of Israel by surprise. Like I said, the Jews weren't looking for anything new. And if not for this one little passage in Jeremiah, there would have been no reason to. But when Jesus shows up and, and while gathered around a table, He says, this is, this is the moment. This is what Jeremiah was talking about. It suddenly, it suddenly becomes clear that, that Jesus wasn't actually doing anything new. He was actually making sense of the whole story. If Jesus doesn't come and, and step into the story to basically explain what was happening all along, it looks pretty bleak. Esther talked last week about me shooting down her first outline. It was because she wanted to talk about the New Covenant. And I was like, no, that's my message. Like, and the reason was because without, without it, things look awful. She was like, I want to preach this message. This is terrible. But Jesus does. He comes into the story and writes a better ending. He writes Himself in as Savior and Redeemer and the One who opens the path and creates space whereby God can again walk with His people. He can be with His people. And that space turns out to be our hearts. By the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, God lives in us. Nothing can separate us from Him again. And this is what is so new about the New Covenant. Not the definitions of sin and morality. The things that were sin in the Old Testament are still sin today. That doesn't change. The, the definitions of, of, of sin don't change. The definitions of morality that were, that were present in the Torah easily summed up by, yeah, if you can love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength 100% of the time, love your neighbor every bit as much as yourself 100% of the time, you got it. Give that a shot. <laughs> Those things don't change. Living a moral life is the same and it still bears good fruit as it did back in the days of Moses. Moses said, if you do these things, you'll have life. like Not like eternal life, but you'll live better. You'll, you'll have blessing in the land. Those things still do that. And Jesus didn't come to change any of that. And we get caught up in asking questions about what Christians can do and what they can't do and what is sin, what is not sin. I think we're missing the point. The goal is to not sin. That's always the goal. That hasn't changed. That's our hope. Like, of course that's the goal. It's always been the goal. And not because we might go to hell or suffer some terrible consequences, but because we weren't made for that. We were made to walk with God. We were made to be holy. That got broken, but that's always been the goal. That's always been what it means to to live the way you were created to live. Those things aren't good for us. They're they're antithetical to our... Sin is antithetical to to our nature because we were created in the image of God. Like it, it's not like oh but we might go to hell we might no it's 
that's not what you were made for. You were made to be with God. Jesus said, be ye holy for your Father is holy. So the goalposts haven't moved. The new covenant doesn't change any of that. The moral life is still the moral life. Jesus didn't change that. What Jesus did was what the the writer of Hebrews said. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain to the most holy place. And since we have such a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right in to the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. What changes is our access. The old covenant hinged on an if. You have access if. If you are morally and and ritually clean, if. You can can access God if you don't ever mess up or, or, or even live in a fallen world where you can get unclean without even doing anything wrong. If. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, for all the promises of God have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. No more if, just yes. This is the final word on all the promises we've discussed in this series. All God's promises are yes in Christ. Jesus gave, gave us access to God and, and that invitation is, is huge. Yes. Yes, come to the Father. We don't have to pick the lock and violate God's boundaries. God has invited us in because of the work of Jesus. The work that He did on the cross and the way that I would love to respond to this message is, is to trade our if for a yes. And to go boldly into God's presence. Pray like, like you're in His presence. Talk to Him like you're in His presence. Live like you're in His presence. Accept the invitation to be with God. That's been His heart all along, is to be with His people. Turn to Him and go boldly into His presence, trusting that Jesus has opened that door. And that the Father waits for you with with a yes on his lips. This is Palm Sunday, the day we typically celebrate the triumphal entry. And I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is offering. A triumphal entry back into God's presence. We typically celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into the city. But but that entrance purchased us just a triumphal entry into the presence of God. So that's how I would love to respond to this message. Go boldly, triumphantly into God's presence and rejoice that, that, that He opens that door to us. That he, that he makes a triumphal entry into our hearts. Let's go.